All right, you guys, we're going to get into the book of Nehemiah this morning. This is the book that we have been studying through for a little while now. And this morning, we're going to go to Nehemiah chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, this will be the time to grab it. We've got some NIV paperbacks in the boxes there at the ends of the aisles. You're very welcome to use one of those. You can even have one of those if you'd like. Um, but as always, the text will be on the screen. And by the way, before I forget, welcome to everyone who's with us online this morning. So glad we can uh, connect even virtually. All right, Nehemiah 9. We're actually going to begin in chapter 9, verse 9. And we're going to read um, quite a large section for a Sunday morning and go all the way up through verse 19. So a whopping 10 verses. You guys ready? And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments and you made known to them your holy sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and the law by Moses your servant you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of out of the rock for their thirst and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them verse 16 but but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you would perform among them. And they stiffened their neck and appointed the leader to return them to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious, merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them. Father, thank you for your great mercy and thank you for your word thank you that by your spirit you led men to write down events and details and to tell the story of your faithfulness Lord I pray that this morning you would be our teacher and you would lead the way would you help us to have hearts and minds that are attentive to what you would say to us this morning. 
as we consider the words that we've just read. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The people of God, Israel, they've built the wall, just to catch you up a little bit, if you're just jumping in. They've been trying to uh, renovate the city, Jerusalem, this place where God's people were meant to come together um, and, and meet with their God, worship, sacrifice, um, hear God's commandments taught to them. And this was, this was the hub. This was where they would gather and meet God, as it were. Um, of course, it had been destroyed, and now they're beginning to rebuild it. They've rebuilt the wall. The temple, of course, been rebuilt. And, and now they're beginning to remind themselves of where they've come from. Their story, their history, everything that, that has happened up until this point, at least the main parts. And uh, so that's what we're reading. It's the story of how at once upon a time, God's people had actually been enslaved. Not metaphorically, not spiritually, like literally. Enslaved in Egypt. And uh, they began to cry out. Although they didn't understand the, the details the specifics of who their God was, they knew the stories. They knew that there was a God in heaven who had called their father Abraham to to go to a place where he might bless them and through them bless the whole world. they, they They had a basic understanding that they were a part of that story only because of their father's rebellion, because of their forefather's refusal to trust and obey God, everything went terribly wrong. And the land that they were meant to uh, enjoy, to be blessed in, ended up becoming just a new place of slavery. And so they cried out once again. God intervened, God heard. God radically committed to keeping his promises said, I'm not going to forget my people. I'm not going to stop helping you. I'm not going to stop listening. And even though, even though you are a stubborn people, stiff-necked, I don't know exactly what that means, but it makes me think of my children on certain days. Just, mm. so easily, so quickly, Forgetting like how blessed they've been, all of the good things that their God has done for them, the way that he intervened. I mean, for God's sake, he split the sea in half and he brought them through the waters and led them out of slavery, not because of anything that they did, but just because God is a gracious, loving, merciful God. And so they're reminding themselves of the story. This is our story. This is our God. This is what he's like. This is um, very, very encouraging. It should be. It should be incredibly encouraging, particularly if you are someone perhaps uh, like myself who, when I began to consider the claims of uh, the scripture, the story, like, who, who is God and what, what is he like? What has he done 
for me, for the world in Jesus and the cross and all that stuff, if if you've heard? Like, what does this mean for me? And I thought, is there mercy for me? Would God rescue me if I cried out? And I remember at a point in my life where I thought, man, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. If I died tonight, I am fairly confident that I'm not going to receive mercy, but I might wake up in some place I don't want to even think about being. You ever have those moments where you like contemplate the reality of hell? No one talks about hell much. Jesus talked about hell a lot. It's really unnerving. But I remember that. And I remember thinking, I, man, I don't know. I don't know where I would be. The good news is that I was so, so, so utterly, radically, unfathomably far from God's mercy not being enough for me, it's ridiculous. I mean, I, mean, I, I didn't kill, I didn't commit, there's a lot of things that I could have done that I didn't do, and so God's mercy was more than enough for me. That was the good news. That's what I came to realize, that actually, I mean, I, I, I wasn't even close to being beyond the reach of God's great mercy. And I don't know where you're at, what you've been up to, what you did this past week, or what thoughts plague you, what sort of shame riddles you, or what weight you're carrying around. God's mercy is more than enough. This is the good news. This is what God's like. This is like the essence of his character. Gracious, forgiving, patient, abounding in steadfast love. The specific part of the story that we've just read in Nehemiah, it's, uh, you may have caught it. It says, even when God's people decided to create a golden calf. Moses, we don't need to go back to Exodus 19, but Moses um, had, had led the people as God rescued them out of this slave situation in Egypt. And they went through the Red Sea and then they traveled a few days and they finally came to this mountain, Mount Sinai. And Moses said, right, I'm going to go up the mountain. 40 days. Just 40 days. Not that long. I'll be back. I don't know how many days went by. But the people were like, Whatever, what, happened to, what happened to Moses? What's going on? You know, I don't, where's the promises? Where's the land? Where's the blessings? You know, I, I signed up for the blessings. Where are the blessings? And they thought, you know what? Maybe God needs our help. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll create one of the gods. Like, uh, remember in Egypt? Remember how they used to worship um, these different golden images? The calf was a big one. Let's, let's do that. And they coerced Aaron into to collecting all of the gold and, and throwing it in the fire. And apparently out came this golden calf. And they said, let's worship this thing. And the way the story's told, I'm not trying to be um, gratuitous, but the way the story's told, it's essentially like if on your wedding day, your spouse said, I'm going to pop out and grab a bottle of wine, something special. Wait for me here. I'll be right back. And while they're gone, you think, man, what happened to so-and-so? And you decide to invite someone to your bedroom and to have an adulterous affair with them. They come back to find you in the act. 
In Exodus 19, the, the way the story's told, it's as if we're being invited to watch God exchange vows with his bride, his people, Israel. And Israel's asked, do you commit to obeying and trusting your loving God? And they all say, we do. This is Exodus 19. It's, it's a wedding ceremony. 40 days later, God's bride commits adultery. It is the ultimate betrayal. The ultimate. And some of you are like, Look, please don't talk about that. That's, that, that's, that's too, too real. I know, I know. You might actually, because of your personal experience, because of your pain, maybe you have been betrayed in that way. Maybe you have committed adultery and you still have to work through the feelings of that and, and just the brokenness of that. That's exactly what the Bible wants us to do. It's, it's the picture that scripture paints. In the wake of that extreme betrayal, God says, but my mercy is greater. My love's greater. I'm more patient. My grace abounds. This is like, this kind of love, I, I don't know. In preparation for this sermon, I was thinking, like this, this is usually where a preacher inserts anecdote. Like, it's like this, and I'll tell you a funny story. There is no funny story. There is no anecdote. There's really nothing that even comes close to this other than the metaphor that the Bible gives us itself, this sort of adulterous affair. And, but God's love, what kind of love is this, is this love? What kind of God loves that much that even in the wake of the ultimate, unfathomable betrayal and pain, he says, but I love you too much. I can't let you go. And if we keep, keep reading the story, we say eventually they persist. Israel is like, it's like this, um, later on actually, Israel is called the adulterous people. That's, that's, that's what, who they become. And they keep doing it over and over and over. And at some point, God says eventually, all right, I'm giving you over to your enemies so that you can suffer. Maybe come to your senses and cry out to me once again. And they do it over and over and over and over. And it's like the story of humanity and God's love just doesn't run out. His mercy is greater. Question, have you experienced this love? How would you even know if you have? You might say, well, I, I, I think I have, or I'd like to think I have. Have I? Sometimes I wonder myself. I, I, I think I've experienced uh, degrees of God's love but then occasionally I reflect and I'm compelled to wonder what if I've only scratched the surface what if I've even like what if I've not even begun what if God's love is that great like that radical that life transforming that in fact whatever I think I've experienced of it I've not, I've not even started are you with me 
let me read the words of Jesus. In Luke chapter 6, verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons and daughters of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. They say the proof is in the pudding. I heard someone say one time that uh, we, we love because we have been loved. First John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. Um, lately, I've been looking around and reflecting on the current state of our, our society, our world, our community, my relationships, our church, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I keep wondering to myself, am I receiving this merciful enemy love kind of love? I had a terrible week this week. Like one of those weeks, if you had asked me probably around Tuesday or Wednesday, how you doing? I, I may have just broke down in tears. It was a really, really bad week. Um, yeah, anyone have a hard week? Yeah, feeling me? Anyone have a hard year? <clears throat> yeah. It started Monday morning. It started with my car getting stolen. That was a major drag. Um, receiving some really spiteful uh, messages, emails from people who I've tried so hard <laughs> to be loving towards and affectionate towards and patient with. And I find myself wondering when I reflect on the words of Jesus and this idea that if I have received mercy, then, then now I have mercy to offer others. And if I have experienced God's love, then I have something from which to draw from. I have a love to share. And when I find myself really, really struggling to be merciful and gracious and patient and loving with people who are being really, really mean to me, then I wonder, have I received this love? Have I received mercy lately? Do I need to remind myself of the story, where I've come from, what God's like, how much I am truly loved? Because if I'm struggling to love, shoot, forget about loving my enemies. If I'm struggling to love y'all, I love you guys. I'm thinking about the other people who aren't here. I'm looking around. I love all you guys, yeah. 
mostly, mostly. It's hard. And I would argue that it's especially hard right now. When anxiety levels are just like, and they've been in the red for a while, something as simple as being required to put a mask back on. I want to put my fist through the wall. Personal conviction. I got a message from someone uh, a couple days ago asking about um, our church's stance on sexual ethics, something like that. I prayed. It took about 24 hours to reflect and finally responded um, as lovingly, as graciously, as honestly as I could. About 250 words, which isn't that much. It's like that much. And their response was, it was just mean. It was just mean. I find myself wanting to um, recoil a little bit. I find my heart tightening up. I find myself wanting to put some distance, maybe erect some walls. I find my heart getting hard more and more in this anxiety-filled life that we're in at the moment. I hope I'm not being extreme. I hope you guys can, is this extreme? Am I, am I the only one? But God's people, God's kids, because we've received some sort of otherworldly love, mercy greater than even my own rebellion and pride and stiff-neckedness, because I am on the receiving end of God's love, apparently I have been empowered to love people who are mean to me. Apparently, I have been empowered to do good to those who hate me, to pray for those who persecute me, to bless those who abuse me. Because I have a deeper well from which to draw. I have a source. I have a love that's filling my heart to overflowing, that I am equipped to love like I have been loved. This is the story. This is what's going on. God's people are remembering where they've come from, and they're rejoicing in this great mercy that has overcome the rebellion and the pride, the arrogance, the betrayal of their fathers. And this is good. This is the reminder. This is our story. Have you experienced this kind of love? How's your heart doing? Is your heart soft? Are you willing to continually to continue to engage? I mean, heck, we don't even have to talk like the world and politics and drama and all the rest. Just how's your relationships doing? How's your marriage doing? How are your friendships doing? How about that? housemate or the people that are just being difficult, that coworker, that that person from the past, how is your heart? Do you find joy in loving your enemies? 
You find that the spirit is present to empower you to love like you've been loved or is your heart starting to tighten up? Do you feel the temptation to rebel, to push back, to lash out, to say no more? Here's where I draw the line. And of course, we're so good at like justifying it all. Bible verses. Hold on, let me go Old Testament for a second. Let me go Old Testament on you. We're in the Old Testament. Let's go Old Testament. Let's go, let's go deep Old Testament. Let's be reminded of how God is so incredibly merciful. How do we experience this kind of love? This is the question. How do we experience this kind of love? In uh, Nehemiah, the... I don't know if you caught it. Verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously. They refused to obey. They stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return them to Egypt. Those people, those guys, my parents, the generation before us, those evil people. It's around 440 BC. 444 is when Nehemiah was written, give or take. In less than 500 years or so, this wall that they just finished building, it's going to be torn down all over again. The second temple that was erected, it's going to be raised to the ground. And the suffering, the destruction they'll experience then will be, that they experienced before will be nothing compared to what they suffer when the Romans take over. At the end of Nehemiah 9, it says that all of the people, after reflecting on this great story, It says they come together and they made a document and they sealed it and all committed to saying, we will do better. We're going to get it right. Our fathers messed it up. Oh my goodness, they got it so wrong. Our forefathers, weren't they just the worst? But we're going to get it right. We're going to do better because we're wiser, because we're more morally, uh, I don't know, what do you want to call it? C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery, this idea that when we look back, we consider these archaic forefathers of ours and all the evil things they did in the name of this and that and the other, and we think to ourselves, no, I'm going to do better. I am going to do better because my heart is more full of love and I am more enlightened and all these things, and this, this is what happens. How do we avoid making that same mistake of like, no, no, I, but I'm a good person. I think good thoughts. I'm more intelligent. I've got better data. My politics are more godly or whatever you want to say, however you want to look at it. How do we experience this sort of love? I love you guys so much, but I know some of you, you hate this right now. This is so annoying to you because I'm talking about the sinfulness of your heart. 
Jesus told the story I read out of Luke 6. Flip the page. We find Jesus sitting um, at a dinner party with a Pharisee named Simon. And in walks a woman. We're not told her name. But in walks a woman who's known to be a woman of the city, a sinner. We're told that Simon the Pharisee thinks to himself. Doesn't say it out loud, doesn't need to. He thinks to himself, man, if Jesus was really who he claimed to be, he would know what this woman's all about. He wouldn't let her touch him if he really knew. Jesus says, Simon, can I, can I tell you a story? And he says, go ahead, teacher. There was two people who were both in debt. One owed 50 denarii, the other 500. The person who uh, the debt was owed to came and canceled both of their debts. And he says, Simon, who do you think um, is more grateful? And he said, well, the one with the 500 denarii. And he says, absolutely, you're correct. And he who's been forgiven much, loves much. He who's been forgiven little, loves little. The thing that's so incredibly uncomfortable about thinking about the sinfulness of our hearts is that it forces us to ask the question, who are you in the story? Are you the 50 or the 500? Are you Simon or the adulterous woman? Who are you in the story? Who do you wish you were? I want to be Simon. This adulterous woman of the city. Here's the good news. We all owe God 500 denarii times 3,000. We are the adulterous woman. We have been forgiven more than we would ever care to admit or even think about. Which means we have received a mercy that is great. You know how God brings us to this realization? You know how he confronts us with our own hearts? Tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't take all of our shame all of our sin, all the things that we've done, all the things that we wouldn't care to think about or talk about. He doesn't take those things and put them in our face like a frustrated owner trying to house train their dog. He doesn't take our shame and put it in our face and say, you see that? Don't you feel disgusted with yourself? God doesn't do that. You know what he does instead? He comes down. He comes down to the very depths of human depravity. And he does something that's so beautiful, so wonderful. And he lifts up Jesus on the cross. He lifts up Jesus, love embodied on the cross and he does something so wonderful so full of grace and mercy and he tells the world to look on 
this is what I'm like. This is what I think about your heart, your sin, your stubbornness, your presumption, that tendency that we all have to think about those people, those people that are ruining our world, that are ruining our country, that are ruining our churches, those evil people. No, he doesn't do that. He lifts up his son and he says, everyone, 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 look, this is how I love you. This is what I've done to deal with your shame and the sin in the world. It's for everyone. God's love is for those who need it, for those who are broken enough to admit it and embrace it. God's mercy are for those who come to the dinner party uninvited, sobbing uncontrollably, saying, is your mercy enough for me? Can you forgive me? And Jesus says, look what I've done. And we're cut to the heart. We're broken. We're broken. And then our hearts begin to well up with this unimaginable love. This this is the gospel. This is the gospel as good as I can preach it. This is the power of the gospel to save us, to transform our hearts, to empower us to love our enemies or even the people that are just kind of annoying. That our hearts might remain soft, soft hearts so that we can go out into this world and when all those people and those people want to tell us to pick a side and get a handful of rocks and get ready to start throwing them, Jesus simply walks through the crowd. He says, come, if you're heavy, if you're riddled with shame, if you're weak, if you're broken, if you're dying of thirst, follow me and I'll teach you how to love like I love. What do you do with that? What do we do with that? The biblical imperative would be to repent. I've been monologuing for about 30 minutes or so, 35 minutes. You've been thinking, it's all up here, maybe a bit here, it's all internal. My question is, what do we do with it? Like, what do we actually do with it besides just think about it? What will you do with your heart and God's love? How might God lead you to love a would-be enemy today, this week? What if we were the kind of church that instead of fighting each other, which is so easy to do these days. Oh my goodness. It's just, you can't, you can't even like go any place. You can hardly even put one foot in front of the next without stepping on a landmine. What if we became the kind of church where we could walk together in love? That we could be the kind of body that begins to build itself up in love. Hearts so soft, so humbled, like Jesus, 
constantly considering the interests of others before my own. How do you feel? Where are you at? What are you struggling with? Is there anything that I'm doing that is perhaps causing you to uh, stumble? Um, how can I come alongside of you and, and, and love you better? Can we talk about this? Can you tell me how you're feeling? You matter. I love you. You annoy me. I won't say that part out loud, but I love you. I love you. And I want to love you. I want to show you mercy the way my father has shown me. What if we were that kind of church? It would take a miracle, I tell you that. Can we stand together, please? Father, thank you for simple moments like a Sunday morning to come and, and sit at your feet, to listen even as I've done my best to articulate something that I, I believe is absolutely from your heart. Thank you for the way that you thank you for the way that you pursue us. That you don't let us just do superficial love. You don't seem at all content to simply let us pick a side and, and go the way of the world, forgetting about the way you empower us to love like we've been loved. As we worship for the next few minutes as we sing songs in worship, I wanna give everyone here an opportunity to do something. Um, it's, it's a symbolic gesture, but it's, it's more than just simply thinking about this stuff. Sometimes I feel like as a, as a as a capital C church, we need more opportunities to like actually um, take a step, like do something, take our stand. So I wanna invite you, if you're like feeling convicted this morning or thinking, man, there's something in my heart that I'd like to surrender and say, Lord Jesus, would you give, would you give me a soft heart? Would you give me more of your mercy that I'd have something not just something, but a treasure to share out there. And you want to come and you want to just bring your heart before the Lord. Maybe kneel and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm, I need you. I need you. I need you to help me. I want you to like come forward. Come to our little altar here. You can stand with your hands lifted up. You can bow on your knee. If you want to come and pray for someone, you can do that. Please be respectful as we, we do that. But I want, you to, I want you to do something. I want you to respond with your body. And come forward and say, Lord Jesus, I want, I want to repent. I want to turn back towards you again. Father, help us.